and welcome to this episode of the View From The Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. Today we're going international on the pod as this time our guest is based in the US. Kathy Joseph is an author, educator and YouTube maverick who has a special interest in the history of science, especially physics. In this episode I talk to Kathy about her love of science and what inspired her to study at further at college before eventually becoming a high school physics teacher. Kathy has now had a change in direction by becoming an inspirational science communicator who focuses on the history of science with her YouTube channel, Kathy Loves Physics. Her recent book, The Lightning Tamers, is a fascinating account of the history of our understanding of electricity. We have a wide-ranging chat exploring the wonders of physics, as well as Kathy's thoughts on her recent ADHD diagnosis. So without further ado, let's hear Kathy's view from the lab. Hi, Kathy, and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Great to have you on today. Thank you for having me here. Now, you are, I invited you on because I like to teach, talk to people about physics and people love physics, and you are a person who undeniably loves that subject. Would that be true? Oh, my gosh, yes. In fact, just minutes before, I was filling out a a piece of paper for a an uh YouTube channel, uh, YouTube video that I was thinking of just this morning titled Why I Love Physics. So, yes, I definitely love physics. You definitely <laughs> love, love physics, which is, which is why we've got you on. And um, I think, you know, when, I t- when I start this podcast, I like to ask my, my kind of guests about their, their love of science and where that kind of came from, whether it was um, innate within them or was it, was it a passion of a parent? Was it a diversion via a, a, an inspirational teacher? Where do you think your love of physics comes from, uh, would you say? I, I've got to say my love of physics started with a science museum in San Francisco called the Exploratorium. And the Exploratorium is a hands-on science museum where there's just like hundreds of different things where you it tells you what to do and then it comes out differently than you thought it would. And then you turn the page and it explains the science pro- process behind why it did what it did. And I felt like it was like a, muse- a magician's workshop where they told you all the tricks of the trade. And I just loved it. I loved being able to see all these weird things and knowing why they were the way they were. And what age were you when you went to that museum then? Oh my gosh. You know what? I honestly don't know when I first went because I just, I'm sure I went for a school trip, you know, probably eight or nine. And then I just continually went there. (laughs) I mean, when I was 16, my friends kidnapped me, blindfolded me and took me to the Exploratorium. So it was a lifelong love. It's a lifelong love. And it's, uh, is it still there, the Exploratorium? Is it still going? Yes, it is. But um, it started at, they had this um, thing to be in the, um, this beautiful place called the Palace of Fine Arts that they built for a World's Fair. And they had like a 50-year thing where they had to pay a dollar a month. And then after that 50-year thing passed... It, the rent went up to a million dollars a month or whatever. And so they moved to a different location and it's 
even bigger and probably better, but part of me still misses the old place because I just knew where everything was. And, and was it a um, so was it and was it purely physics they looked at in this museum, or was it like uh, a variety of different sciences within that kind of that space? It was based in physics, but they have biology. They're always dissecting cow eyeballs, and they have sort of psychology in there, and they have um, they have um, chemistry stuff, and they have you know, nature stuff, and they have all sorts of things. And it's just, I love physics so much that I would sort of self-select from the stuff that made me the happiest. But it's, yeah, it's, I, it's my favorite museum in the entire world of any kind. Okay. And it's, it's good to to hear it's still going and it's still kind of inspiring young students of the, of the future. And I guess, um, when you kind of love a science, I guess, there must be um, other people along the way who, who, who kind of helped you in that journey. And um, whether it was, I mean, what were your science teachers like? What are particular science teachers that kind of helped you with that kind of supporting you in that science journey when you were kind of moving up to, I guess, high school, uh, when you have perhaps more individual kind of physics lessons, I guess. Um, can you tell us anything about your school experience as, as you grew older? Yes, um, and I feel bad that I didn't say this before. Um, my high school physics teacher was such an inspiration. And he, part of it was that he enjoyed that I thought differently. And I found an old yearbook, and he said something like, you have the most unusual brain I've ever seen. And I love that. It made me feel so good instead of feeling like, you know, because I'm I'm a very uneven learner. <laughs> okay. And what do you mean by that? Well, I've just been diagnosed with ADHD. Okay. And it makes my entire life make so much more sense because I'm all about patterns. I can put concepts together. I can think outside the box and I can't get my homework in on time and it's messy <laughs> and it's... And I will contribute to the conversation in class, but I might derail you onto a completely different subject and I will be passionate about all of it. (laughs) So some teachers found that wonderful and some teachers hated me. I see, yeah. Not an exaggeration, hated me. And I came into physics with a pre-love of the subject because of the Exploratorium. But then my teacher, he, he let it, he let us learn in slightly different ways. We do. And he didn't take my deficiencies as a lack of interest or a lack of focus or, you know, like maybe this kid isn't really good at it because they're not focusing well. They just, accepted me for who I was and let me love the subject. And that just was beautiful. Then that helped you. So did you say you had ADD or ADHD? So do you have a bit of hyperactivity within the, the, the attention def- deficit, would you say? Well, I don't actually have what we think of as ADHD. I don't have the hyperactive, but they changed the name. 
So even if you have ADHD without the H, you have inactive ADHD. And I'm like, this is ADHD is the worst name thing ever because it is not that you have an attention deficit. You have an attention irregularity. Okay. We can focus on things, hyperfocus, it's called. We can focus immensely. We just can't always focus. <laughs> That's what it is, I guess. Yeah. And it's kind of, um, I mean, do you think there, I mean, you must, what made you decide to get a diagnosis out of interest? Um, because obviously you've, you've gone through, you know, a lot, uh, some, some of your professional life, obviously your student life. What was, what was the, um, uh, the uh, to use the science words, the, the catalyst to perhaps get diagnosed out of interest? The catalyst was about eight months ago, I think. Uh, someone said they couldn't believe how I was so lazy that I wouldn't look up how to pronounce a name properly. Right. And I almost apologized and said, like, I tried to look up the name, but I didn't remember how to pronounce it. I have a real hard time with German names because they're spelled like they're they're spelled like English words are, but they're pronounced differently. Hmm. And I just it, I have a real hard time with that. Um, and then I just deleted it and deleted him. But it just made me so hurt. And I was like, why am I so hurt? Like, you know, I get trolls all the time. People complain about all everything, but that one hurt. And then I realized I used to be called lazy all the time. I mean, I once had a high school English teacher who said I was the laziest student he'd ever had the misfortune of teaching in his 20 years of teaching. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And I, it just hit me. And then it's just like, wait a minute. I'm not lazy. Why do I feel this way? Why have I always been told I had the worst memory ever? And I can remember thousands of different people's histories and how they all interconnect. And then I realized I'm not lazy. I'm just different. Yes. Yeah. And that made me, I mean, I got tested like a month ago and I'm 49. Well, so not long, not long ago then. Okay. And uh, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel? How does it make you feel when you had it, had that diagnosis? Was did it kind of? Um, I don't know. Did it make you feel uh, better in a, in a sense, or how how were your thoughts on that? Well, bef when I was just like, oh, this is what's going on with me, I felt so much better. I felt like, oh wow, I get better why I am the way I am and why I get frustrated with myself and why other people get frustrated with me <laughs> and found easier ways to, to deal with some of those things. But getting tested was actually a little depressing because you, I got tested and they, they interview you, but they also give you this test where they shine letters and you're supposed to click the space bar unless the letter is an X. Okay. And how hard is that? Not hard at all. I can recognize an X. Seems easy. <laughs> right. But I kept on hitting the X. And I it almost felt like I could feel my brain breaking in real time. 
And I felt so frustrated by it not doing what I wanted it to do. I see. And that, it took me a couple days to process that of like, yeah, this means that sometimes things that are simple for other people that should be simple, recognizing an X is not simple for me. But then I can do things that other people can't do at all. And they would go, yeah, no, I, uh, I can't do that. And those are easy for me. And so it doesn't make my brain broken. It makes it, I keep on saying this, different. Different, yes. I mean, I was thinking when you're talking, I was going to ask you a question later on about, um, you know, being a YouTuber and the difficulty, I always think, with when you're in social media is, is, is the constant pressure of, of um, developing new ideas and new videos um, in a kind of regular basis. And I was just wondering whether, how, how do you, with your ADHD, I guess, um, how, what kind of strategies do you use? I mean, obviously, you've only recently found out about your ADHD, but how do you keep on track with those kind of things? Um, or is it easy because it's stuff you're interested in? Um, what's your, is, do you have any particular um, ways of approaching your kind of your media work, your, your social media work? Well, in terms of ideas, that is not a problem. What happened was I started out to write a book about the history of electricity through the scientists who discovered it. Yes. And then I made the YouTube channel so that I could get some people to buy the book who I didn't know personally. And then I fell in love with the medium and the interaction between the videos and my books and they've both expanded. So for me, like getting ideas, I, I have a backlog of probably 10 years of videos, literally. Okay. And I keep on getting diverted. I think four years ago, I promised to do a video on the history of television. And um, I'm going to get to it. But I don't know where. So in terms of coming up with ideas, that's not a problem for me. Um, in terms of, I think a lot of people who make YouTube channels, we're told we have to publish regularly. We have to publish short videos. We're not supposed to make them too deep or too long or have too much math yeah. because we want it to be popular. And um, I don't follow those rules. Um, my videos are usually like 30 minutes to an, over an hour. I often have videos with calculus in the middle of a story. Um, I mean, not often, I, I'm, but I've gone into a big series of videos on Maxwell's equations. And that has, you can't, uh, you know, that has some calculus in it or quaternions or, and I'm, I'm just, I'm not trying. I mean, I try to make my thumbnail look nice and I try to make the words enticing and I format the video with the idea of like, what would the person watching it want to learn and want to know about. So for example, when I click on a YouTube video, I often kind of forget why I clicked on it. You know what I mean? You look at it and you go click and then they start talking and you're like, wait a minute, what was, <laughs> did I, what was I doing? 
so I always start my videos off with a little bit of like, this is what this video is going to be about. This is why it's interesting, or maybe a little personal story or a little thing just for like, you know, two to five minutes to sort of remind people like, you want to stick around for the hour. <laughs> and this is what it's going to be like. So I don't have problems with any of that um, in terms of the way my my strange brain works. I see. No, so you see kind of, um, so you said that in a sense, the book, um, uh, the, the Lightning Tamers, that was the kind of, again, I shouldn't overuse the word catalyst. That was the catalyst for your, um, your YouTube uh, uh, career rather than the other way around. So the book came first and then the kind of support kind of explanations came after that. Is that, is that right, right? And you kind of condensed some of the information in the book into your videos. Is that what you were doing? Well, sort of. The rough draft of the book came out first. Right, okay. And the very rough draft, meaning that I just went wherever my mind wanted to go. So my original rough draft had chapters on the history of radio waves and had chapters on the history of quantum mechanics and it was and cell phones and television and microwave. I mean, it was just this Frankenstein monster with every interesting thing I could find. Mm. And by it, what the videos are not condensed from the book, they're initially from my the book, and then sometimes the videos would go further, and then sometimes the book would go further, and it's very interactive. By putting together a video, I feel like on YouTube, there's it's very hard to show authenticity because, I mean, you can show authenticity because you're from a university that's famous or you have a famous name or you're you know whatever or you have really good production values but I don't have any of that so I just I figured my authenticity comes from original documents so I started putting tons of original images uh, images from original documents and every time I found those images I would discover something new about what I was saying and putting it together in that visual way taught me something new. And then when I produced it, people would make comments and they'd correct me and they'd show my mistakes or they'd expand it or they'd say, have you heard of this person? How about this person? Have you, do you know the origin of the term tank circuit? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that gets fed back into the book. And now, I mean, I've finished this book, The Lightning Tamers, and I have seven more partially written. So they're all interacting with each other, if that makes any sense. Okay, so you've got some kind of, so you've got, you've got your published book, but you've got, um, say, six say six other books or seven other books, you say, that could be about different, different areas of physics. So got lots of ideas there. I mean, in terms of the book structure itself, um, uh, did anyone say to you, or oh, you've got to do it in this order, you, you kind of do it in chronological order? Um, maybe that's not the way your mind perhaps works in terms of, yeah, I'm going to do it in that, that order. I guess you you worked out the chapters uh, as and when you were ready, or did you kind of, you know, uh, strategically go right and start right at the beginning or start in the, you know, uh, the, the first electricity pioneers and then I'm going to move straight forward? I guess that's not how it worked for you. No, it actually is how it works for me. It did work that way. Okay. Chronologically, 
I started with like going on Wikipedia and seeing who they said, you know, first noticed static electricity and just went from person to person and just let the story go wherever it wanted to. Okay. And that's how I got diverted into, you know, because radio waves and all that stuff. But also then by doing the videos, sometimes I found people that I missed um, later on and sort of went back and went, aha, I need, I mean, like my original thing, I didn't talk about George Ohm and Ohm's law. Like that's a mistake. I also didn't talk about Ampere. That's a mistake. <laughs> but also, I mean, just, and then there's also other people that I missed because most people missed them. Like there is a Italian scientist named Laura Bossi who became a professor of physics in the 1730s. And which is amazing. Like, and she eventually became, she was super famous. Voltaire wrote to her. Volta dedicated his research to her. And she taught this guy named Galvani, who ended up discovering after her death that two different metals could make a dead frog jump, which eventually led to the battery. All of that is connected. And she was just a missing piece from the story that I didn't realize till a little later where she fit in. And because I knew the other parts of the story so much better, I could see how she fit into the story, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, because when you're talking, I was thinking about, uh, you know, one of my questions is gonna be today, um, you know, when you're looking at the, you know, the history of electricity and you're looking roughly from like 1500 onwards, uh, you know, to the present day, um, the nature of the, the history of science that has been um, published, I suppose, in the past is, is very male, very white, very European, very North American. Um, are there any other examples other than, say, Laura Bassey? Are there any other kind of surprising people you'd not heard of before that perhaps had contributed to the, um, the story of electricity, but maybe weren't name-checked or haven't been name-checked in the textbooks and the and the history and, and until now. Any other examples that, that, that popped up along the journey? There's a surprising number of women who were involved, but usually tangentially. Okay. And by that, I mean that there are women involved, but they, um, they assisted people. Or there was a woman named Jane Mercer, I'm thinking. I'm sorry. I'm trying to recall her name. That's okay. Her name was Jane Marset. I'm going to go with Jane Marset. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. Don't worry. Don't worry. We can check it later. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Jane Marset. And Jane Marset was an English woman who went to um, these lectures of chemistry by this guy named Humphrey Davy. And Humphrey Davies' lectures were super, super popular. Like they were the highlight of the English elite and very popular with women, but women had no scientific background. So she was like, I kind of get what's going on, but it's frustrating to me. So her husband was a chemist. She asked him a bunch of questions. And then she said, the lectures were so much more interesting. 
So she put together a book called Conversations in Chemistry, especially for women. Okay. Which is a conversation of two young girls talking about science, chemistry, in order to teach chemistry. And that was the book that taught Michael Faraday how chemistry works. He said something like, I could enjoy Arabian Nights as well as the next man. But when I found Mrs. Mercer's book, I grabbed onto it and held on for dear life or something like that. Like it was why he learned chemistry and how eventually he became Humphrey Davies' assistant is because he learned chemistry, then he wrote a book himself, then um, Davy got an injury and he ended up being his assistant. And eventually Davy discovers basically almost everything about electricity. Faraday, I mean, Faraday discovers how to make electricity from moving magnets. He creates the idea of magnetic fields. He creates the idea of electric fields. He discovers that everything has a magnetic effect. He says that light is a vibration of electric or magnetic lines of force. He inspires Maxwell to make Maxwell's equations and which creates radio waves and also creates relativity and modern physics. Like it all goes back to Faraday who had no education except for this one book. So in a sense, you've got, um, although you said earlier, you know, your, your, your mind perhaps is scattered sometimes, you're very good at connecting ideas and um, processes and linking them to people and seeing how the, those ideas connect and obviously evolve, evolve through time. And it's very interesting. Obviously, Faraday is very, you know, well known for his, his chemistry as well. Um, uh, you know, lots, lots of books as well. So kind of interesting to see how they, those, those kind of ideas are connected. And these people we don't hear about always, um, uh, we don't hear about them enough, make these big contributions to, um, you know, the scientific story, even though often, of course, the women weren't credited with a lot of the work they did or the, or, or the man's name went on, on the, uh, you know, the, the, the research paper after all had been done. And, uh, of course, we would hope these days that was, you know, that wasn't, of course, of course the case. Um, and we're, we've got many amazing scientists in, the, of course, in the 21st century. But it's good to kind of go back and hear about some of those bigger stories other than obviously Marie Curie. Obviously, people talk about a lot, but there are many, many others. And uh, obviously, within your electricity story that must have been kind of unearthed um, as you as you as you went through. I mean, in terms of the physics itself, um, I know also that you, you, you taught a bit of high school physics back in the day. And um, I was interested to know because um, this is uh, this is based, well, this start off as a kind of a UK podcast. I was interested to know in terms of the the curriculum in, in kind of American schools in your particular state, do they talk much about the history of science particularly, or do they very much focus on the the equations and this happens and you explain that? Um, how is it kind of organised in any way, or is it ignored in 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 the states? I don't know. Any comments on that? I feel like the history is almost completely ignored. We either don't talk about it and just start with the concepts and the math, even the simple math for the simple classes, or we will have the most dry and 
uninspiring and uninformative history. Like someone will say, in 1820, the Danish philosopher Hans Christian Orsted accidentally discovered that the current carrying wire will create a circular magnetic field, and everyone's going, snooze, right? <laughs> it, it's, that's the only history I ever had, was just the bare bones and not very interesting to me. And um, our books don't have it. And so most, most teachers, at least in the United States, don't know where to start. Sometimes they're assigned, like I know a lot of college professors who are assigned to do a history of science class and they are so stumped. And what they end up doing is a bunch of sort of mini biographies of individual people because they don't know how everything's connected. So they can't make a coherent story. It's just more of a, like, isn't this person impressive? Isn't this person impressive? And when you do that that way, you have this feeling of, like, you have to make them look superior, right? You can't talk about their, their less than lovely attributes because they're humans. And some of them were mostly lovely, and some of them were mostly not lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> and those are, the, those are where the interesting stories come from, I guess. And you kind of, uh, it helps, you know, it does help some students. Some people can cope with just here's some science, you know, that here's the concept. Um, but I think it's nice. And a lot of um, children, you know, want the context, don't they, about, about, about why this happens. And I guess in, in America, like in the UK, um, it's time pressures perhaps within the curriculum, I assume, with high, uh, within the high schools and when I taught, it was always like, you've got to finish this unit by this time and, you ha and you've got to do this test by this date. Um, so you don't necessarily have time to talk about um, some of the surrounding things unless it's, um, you know, part of, the part of the assessment or something, which it often isn't. Um, so is, is, is that kind of, are you kind of squeezed a little bit in the American system as well in terms of what you've got to teach when, would you say? Oh, incredibly squeezed. And I think also part of it is we have... I think it's a false impression that we don't have the time to teach the history. Okay. I think that when you include the history in the science, it makes it, it solves a lot of problems that you have without it. It, it creates an interest in the subject because you don't have to say, this is interesting for this reason and you'll understand it in a couple of weeks. You can say, this person was obsessed with trying to figure out what magnets are, right? And if they're the same as static electricity or not. So you don't have to say why it's interesting. You can say why they thought it was interesting. And as they go through the story, it gets more and more complicated. It starts simple and it gets more complicated. So it naturally ramps up in terms of their knowledge and it all grows on itself. So instead of doing, we tend to teach physics as these sort of separate entities. Okay, to, this week we are talking about kinetic energy. Let's do a lot of problem with kinetic energy, but we don't say where kinetic energy came from, what it, how it, why we have the half, I mean, we, we might give a math 
reason for why we have one half mv squared, but we don't see where it came from historically. And so it makes it so that every time we teach something, we kind of have to repeat it over and over and over again because they don't remember it. It doesn't mean anything to them when you just tell it as bare facts. And, and the concepts will help you remember, and you're also naturally teaching sort of scientific process, not the traditional scientific process like what we think of, but how science actually progresses, how it, you know, someone will come up with an idea and will like 60% of it <laughs> and how it will grow and how things combine. I just think that you can actually do a lot more and a lot faster and a lot deeper with the history. The only problem is getting all that history. Like I did a video which was 40 minutes long about Maxwell's equations, which I consider one of the hardest things to teach. Yeah. And I taught in 40 minutes what Richard Feynman took two weeks to teach. So I'm glad you mentioned Richard Feynman because we talked off, off the podcast about, um, uh, would you call it the Feynman method or the Feynman approach um, in terms of physics teaching? And you were saying that um, it's quite influential in the way you do things in, in, in the US. Um, could you kind of remind us about what his approach is? And, and it'd be interesting to hear because um, you've got some alternative views about there's some weaknesses you feel in, in the way that is taught in, in, in the in the US. So could you kind of give us a bit of more detail on that? So his approach and then the criticisms you perhaps have, have about it. Yes. Now, I want to qualify this with Richard Feynman was one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. And also, he was an excellent teacher, like excellent. But he had a certain style to his teaching that worked well for him and for certain people, but doesn't work well to start off with physics, if that makes any sense. And so I just want to say before uh, the early 60s, physics was often taught through the history. I can find tons. Most people would not write a physics book without including a little history. And often papers would say, since the time of Gilbert, meaning like everyone knew who Gilbert was. <laughs> now we won't do that. And what I think changed that was that in the late 50s at Caltech, which is where Feynman was, there was a lot of people worried that their undergraduate degree was not teaching their students about modern physics. They couldn't understand what Feynman was doing after graduating from the same university. So they asked him to teach a two-year undergraduate advanced physics class. And at the time, no advanced physicists were asked to teach undergrads. It, you just didn't do it. It didn't bother with it. That's the low stuff. You dealt with the higher stuff. But he said, okay, I will do it, but one time. So they recorded everything, they photographed everything, and they made it into a book, Feynman's Lectures in Physics. And Feynman put this together, but he didn't think that he had enough time to talk about the history. He legit said, 
I'd love to talk about the history. We don't have the time. Go look it up on an encyclopedia. Have fun. And so he taught it the way most of us taught physics, the way most of us learn physics, the concepts and the math. And his book, I mean, while he was doing his lectures, the undergrads who were physics majors at Caltech struggled a little bit with it, but the professors adored it because he's so clear, he's so concise, he put everything together so well that it started trickling down everywhere. And soon I feel like I have, I don't see textbooks with history in them anymore, anywhere, at any level. And I certainly don't see history incorporated with real physics, with real depth. If they talk about the history, the physics is so superficial. You will not learn physics from most history books, which drives me crazy. Um, and so be, because he was so popular, I feel like almost all of our physics classes, high school, conceptual physics in college, it's all just concepts and simpler math. And then you get to concepts and harder math. And I feel like we're losing a way to reach people who struggle with math and the people who love math, we're losing an ability to teach them how everything's connected and how everything's discovered so that when they become engineers and physicists, they will have a thousand stories of how discoveries have made to inspire them for their new discoveries. To kind of carry on, carry on the story. So in, in a sense, you'll say, is it true you're saying that although Feynman's um, kind of approach was, I guess, kind of, I guess, discreet and elegant, perhaps just looking at the fundamentals that it, what it was missing was the, the, the stories and the context behind it, which helps a lot of people, um, especially maybe non-super technical math, um, you know, people who are strong at math, perhaps. And it helps that with kind of developing um, you know, their schema, their, their understanding of, of, of the, the concepts and helps them to, to build a more, you know, holistic p picture, I guess, and see how the story develops. Would that be true? Isn't it kind of is, is giving a proper... Um, good account of the the story of physics, and that really helps with the understanding as well. It, I honestly, I, I think it helps everyone, because I, I made my YouTube channel. I wrote my book for people who are not scientists to learn science, and I would say the vast majority of my fans are scientists and engineers, because everyone likes. If you're a scientist, you want to know how things work. You like to know how things work. And the next question is, why do we think that? And if we don't include the history, we're missing an important feature of it for every level, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, a nice point kind of... Um finish on would possibly look talk about an inspiration really an inspiration in physics so i did want to ask you um before you went today about people 
a you admire perhaps in your space so maybe the youtube space that are doing something similar to you but maybe a different spin on things um into especially in physics of course and is there any kind of books um that uh, you'd, you'd give to say a 16 year old who is thinking about you know maybe their high school career maybe thinking about college thinking about engineering um what kind of where would you direct people these days either with the the, the media world or just the old-fashioned i suppose books um that would inspire people um of course your lightning tamers we'll mention that as a, as a good place to start but what other places would you um send people to oh gosh this is actually hard for me okay because i i really i don't see a lot of people using the history to teach the science. I see people talking about the history and I see people talking about the science, but I don't see a lot of overlap between those two. So to me, the greatest way to know a, more about where things come from is the history. So if someone wanted to know about quantum mechanics, I'd say, well, there is one book that I really liked called, um, was called Einstein and the Quantum by a guy named Douglas Stone, who was a physicist who was trying to explain how Einstein promoted and created and then fought against and then promoted again quantum mechanics. And I thought it was fascinating and you will learn a little bit about quantum mechanics, but you know, it's, it's a big subject. Um, I, I thought that one was good, but then I would also say, um, Max Planck or Max Planck, who, who started this whole thing and funded the whole thing. He, um, his, he wrote a little autobiography and it's beautifully written. It's funny. It's charming. It's short, which I like. And, <laughs> It's really profoundly interesting. Or Rutherford has a little article about the history of science and his part in it, which is amazing. Um, there's, I, I don't know, I find more of the inspiration from the original documents. Okay. And I started something where, um, so I post all the, scripts for my videos. So I write out my videos beforehand and I post them on my website. And recently I put something where I wish I'd done this earlier, where I not only have citations, but I have link citations. So you can click on that and go straight to the document I'm talking about so that you could expand your knowledge of the subject for yourself see if you agree with me, but also like when you can spend a little bit more time reading what they said, I think that that will expand your knowledge the, even more than I can do in an hour long video. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, um, go and explore, explore things yourself. You know, often um, I find myself falling down a Wikipedia hole and going from one, one article to the next. So that kind of, that kind of, uh, exploratory, um, idea is, uh, is is good. So in terms of um, you, and obviously you've got your, your, your book out, what's next? You said you've got about, let's say, six or seven books that are possibly in waiting in the wings. 
um, are you going to be able to tell us on the podcast which you're, you're going to hold yourself to and say this is going to be my next book or, or, or should I not put you on the spot for that? Oh, no, I, I, I'm started, but like barely. Okay, so my, I'm sort of doing two paths at the same time is my plan. My plan for the YouTube channel is to work on the videos on a book that I'm going to write that is going to be called The Evolution of Wireless from Sir Isaac Newton to Hedy Lamarr. And I want to make videos about like television and microwaves and cell phones and blah, blah, blah that I, before I put the book together so that I can have this interactive thing. And while I'm working on that, I am writing my second book, which is going to be called The Radium Revolution, which is going to be about the history of the discovery of electrons and um, x-rays and how that led to the discovery of radiation and radium and how radium led to like the discovery of the nucleus and Bohr model, like basically how physicists look at the world in a totally different way than non-physicists. How we look at space and time and everything differently. And that all comes from the story of radium. Plus I get to talk about Marie Sklodowska Curie and Ernest Rutherford and some of my favorite people. So it's kind of, uh, sounds like another kind of good, um, idea and a good concept around uh, you know like a singular idea so, ra- so radium all the things that um, spin off that as electrons do um, so it sounds like it's going to be an exciting project and hopefully uh, perhaps we'll catch up again when that's uh, available um, and and please do t- uh, keep in touch because I'm really happy to come on um, there's a big time difference between us so thank you for joining me today on the view from the lab podcast and best of wishes for the rest of the year Kathy thank you for joining me Thank you so much. This was so much fun. There we have it. Another episode of The View from the Lab all done. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kathy and her inspiring love for physics. Do you know anyone else who can match Kathy's passion for science? If you do, please feel free to get in contact with me at andy.woods at pearson.com and we can get the conversation started. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.